1939, convicted bank robber Henry Young tried and failed to escape from Alcatraz. Three years later, after spending time in solitary confinement, he stabbed Rufus McCain, a fellow escapee, to death. His subsequent trial hinged on his brutal treatment within the Alcatraz system, and particularly while in solitary. In 1995, his story was adapted into a film, Murder in the First, which presented a very favorable, if somewhat inaccurate, portrait of his life. This is based on a true crime. I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. And welcome to episode uh, 28. I believe it's 28. Woohoo! Wow, we're going to hit our 30th episode pretty close to our one-year podcasting anniversary. Wow, nice. How exciting. Yeah, totally. Well, uh, we're in the process of some changes here. Some big changes, some small changes, some podcasting changes, some life changes. Um, But one change we did make is that the promos for our two true crime podcasting friends will be played at the end of this episode. So be sure to stay tuned once we wrap it up and then jump over and subscribe to them. Uh, So the two promos are going to be for Murder Was the Case, which is hosted by criminologist Lee Meller. It's a more of an informative podcast. It's it's really, really cool. You guys should definitely check it out. And then the other promo is for Eye for an Eye podcast, which is hosted by Lisa and Matt. They're great. They're hilarious. Their most recent episode is on Casey Anthony. So always an interesting one to, to listen to. Oh, right on. Yes. And then... Uh, well, we didn't have any new good reviews. Oh, we didn't? No. Well, we had some good ratings. We actually had enough ratings to push us over that 100 mark, which is awesome. And oh. Then we had one written review to uh, inform us of, of the rampant vocal fry. Oh, so I'm sorry, everybody. Thanks, thanks for letting me know. I was not aware what my own voice sounds like. So. Oh, I thought that was me. Awesome. Well... Uh, why don't you shout out our Teaser Tuesday winners? We had one in every category. We actually had a few people in every category who jumped in and were really excited about this movie. So Yeah, for getting our Teaser Tuesday rather quickly, we have Amanda, A.D. Leisenring on Instagram, and of course, the famous Chippy TFT on Twitter. Good job. And Donnie on Facebook. Donnie also joined our cult of Based on a True Crime. So welcome to the cult. Yes, welcome. Yes. We're nearing 100 members there. I feel like we should should do something special when we reach 100 wow so many milestones coming up yeah no kidding that's pretty cool yeah well if you saw our teaser tuesday you'll know that this week we are covering the 1995 film murder in the first i heard from quite a few people that were really moved by by this film you know seeing it when it came out and the the true story is interesting and very very different yeah yeah, and that's one of the things uh, when we jump into the film discussion, we'll kind of chat a little bit about um, you, well your experience in particular after having done all the research in the case and then watching the movie pretty much right after that and how it may have informed your viewing a little bit. Yes, I have some opinions, but you'll have to wait. You'll have to wait to hear my opinions Yeah, well. because now it's story time. <laughs>
Henry Theodore Young was born on June 20th, 1911 in Kansas City, Missouri. Growing up, he idolized his mother, Helen, despite the fact that she was cold to him. While in prison, he would often recall little details about her that continued to stand out to him, like the fact that her hair was gold in the sun and brown in the shade, or that she loved wearing beads. His father, David, on the other hand, was No relation? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> good name, good name. Uh, strong name. Well, uh, his father, David, on the other hand, was an alcoholic with a temper. At one point while drunk, his father pulled a gun on his mother and sister, Ruth, and threatened them with it. His mother was able to talk him down, and after he fell into a drunken stupor, she took the gun and threw it into a nearby creek. Henry's aunt, Amelia Young, later expressed her concerns that Henry's parents were too busy fighting each other to teach values to Henry and his sister, other than David teaching his son how to steal. Henry did recall some fond memories of times with both his mother and father, however. In one story, he recalled his mother cooking a possum that his father caught and the smell being so terrible that the whole family left the table rather than eat it. Are you glad you're a vegetarian? Yeah, I never had that experience growing up in Southern Illinois. Yeah, I never had that experience growing up in New Jersey. Seagulls, on the other hand. (laughs) Like sky possums. Oh, yum. Well, he also talked about time spent with his father, where his father taught him how to fix shotgun shells with lard to keep the shots together. Up until junior high school, Henry's childhood was fairly uneventful, but when he turned 14, his parents divorced. Later that same year, Henry came down with polio. He recovered, but his grades at school dropped precipitously in every course other than physical education. Soon after, he dropped out and began working as a clerk at the Postal Telegraph. When Henry was 17, his mother remarried, and Henry did not get along well with his stepfather, Amy Payne. After two years of struggling with the situation at home, Henry left and became a drifter. Henry made his way from Missouri to Montana, where he resurfaced in 1932 in Miles City. Henry was busted for stealing a flashlight from a fellow transient. Prior to going to trial, he made a deal with the district attorney to plead guilty in exchange for a 30-day sentence. During the trial, however, the DA went back on the agreement and asked for a 15-month sentence instead, which the judge agreed to. Henry felt deeply betrayed by the actions of the DA, and this kind of began his lifelong mistrust of and victimization by the justice system. Ah, interesting. So Henry was sent to the Deer Lodge State Penitentiary in Montana to serve his 15-month sentence. While there, he honed his skills as a thief, learning the tricks of the trade from fellow inmates. Not long after his release in 1933, Henry was once again in trouble with the law, first being arrested for public intoxication in Wenatchee, Washington. He gave the false name of Eugene Taylor, and he was told to leave town. He next went to Spokane, Washington, where he was immediately arrested for stealing a suit. A suit? Hmm. Yes, a suit. All right. I imagine, like, stealing it off of a clothesline, I guess, because it was the 1930s and i guess people had clotheslines yeah right on so henry was sent to the washington state penitentiary at walla walla where he continued to learn from the inmates and became friends with two in particular jack baker and sherman baxter henry was paroled in october of 1934 and his first stop after leaving was the home of a prison friend in chelan washington where he bought a 32 caliber automatic pistol he met up with jack baker and sherman baxter in spokane and the two decided that they would rob a bank. Uh-oh. Yeah, never a good idea. Nope. Well, the first step in their plan was to steal a car. Henry flagged down a taxi and at gunpoint forced the driver to pick up Jack and Sherman on the outskirts of town. They abandoned the driver in the countryside and drove to Chilen, where they switched out the license plates on the car for ones they had stole. The next stop was Everett, where Henry was hoping to get some more guns by robbing a hardware store, but when they got there, the guns were gone. 
While in town, Henry stopped by a house belonging to the mother of another friend from prison to whom he'd promised money for bail. He let her know that he didn't have any money yet and gave her daughter and her daughter's boyfriend a ride into downtown Everett. After dropping them off, the three men began looking for a place to rob, eventually coming across a corner with a gas station and a bakery. Henry decided that they would rob the bakery. I would too. I just give him a bag and say, give me all your bear claws. Oh, I was going to say yeah, bear claws would bear be my claws, choice too. Yeah. Or the chocolate Danish. Eh, you know. Well, Jack stayed in the car to act as the getaway driver while Henry and Sherman went into the bakery. Sherman went straight for the register while Henry headed into the back. He described what happened next as follows. Quote, I walked to the full length of the counter, turned into a narrow passageway, then turned left, and I stood into a doorway that led into an office. A short, chunky man confronted me. Through a door to my right, I saw a white-coated baker removing pans from an oven. This man before me told me that he had no money when I demanded that he get back into the room. I had a gun trained on him. Again, he told me that he had no money. Then he slapped my gun hand down. I shot into the floor once, raised my gun, and shot into his chest. He said, oh, oh, and fell towards me. I turned and fled. The three fled the scene and drove to Seattle, where they stayed overnight. The next morning, Jack bought a newspaper and confirmed what they likely already knew. The baker had died from his gunshot wound. The men continued their planned robbery, making their way to Lind, Washington. Once again, Jack remained in the car while Henry and Sherman entered the First National Bank of Lind. They forced the bank teller into the vault at gunpoint and stole $406 before attempting to make their escape. Unfortunately, uh, well for them at least, they blew a tire as they attempted to drive off and their car was quickly surrounded by police responding to the scene. Oh, busted. Yep. The men made a pact to never speak of the shooting at the bakery, and all three were sentenced to 20 years for the bank robbery. They were sent to the McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary, where Henry was brought before a classification committee. They interviewed him about his criminal past, and Henry boasted to them about the crime spree which led to the bank robbery, although he did leave out the murder. Hmm, well, yep. that was like maybe a good choice. Yeah, so he's not you know, completely oblivious. Yeah. Well, the committee dubbed him a dangerous criminal and they recommended that he be sent to Leavenworth, which is a medium security prison in Kansas. And they wanted to do that because they felt that he had this relationship with Sherman Baxter and they wanted to separate the two. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. Yes. Well, instead of being sent to Leavenworth, Henry was sent to Alcatraz. <sighs> yep. A maximum security prison that had just opened up in 1934 and was looking for inmates to fill its cells. Henry arrived at the prison on June 1st, 1935, and before the end of the month, he was already in trouble with prison authority. From the time it opened until the 1950s, Alcatraz had a very strict policy of expecting total silence from inmates at all times. So on June 30th, uh, less than a month after arriving, Henry got in trouble for, quote, loud laughing and talking in mess. But that time, at least, he was let off with just a warning. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't handle that. No, I could not handle that either. Jeez. I guess that's why we have a podcast so we can talk. Yeah, I'm loud. <laughs> well, less than three weeks later, Henry got in trouble again for refusing to shake out some clothes while working in the laundry room. Deputy Warden C.J. Shuttleworth sent him to solitary confinement for his insubordination, where he remained for a little less than two weeks. Solitary confinement at Alcatraz took place in The Hole, a nickname for five cells located at the end of the D-block. Those cells were completely devoid of light and were extremely cold. Prisoners sent to the hole were often stripped of their clothes and forced to sleep on the concrete floor in nothing but their underwear, since most cells only contained a sink and a toilet. One cell, nicknamed the strip cell, didn't even have a toilet. It just had a hole in the floor, and the prisoners 
sent to the cell were often stripped completely naked. In addition to the cells in the hole, there was also a basement area called the dungeon, which contained several more cells reserved for the worst offenders. They were stripped naked and chained to the wall, forced to stand with their feet barely touching the floor for nine hours a day. A bucket was given to them to use as a toilet, which was emptied once a week. Prisoners in solitary confinement were given one full meal every three days, and other than that, they were given nothing but a few slices of bread and water per day. So how is that not torture? How is it not considered torture? That seems I don't awful, understand. yeah. I mean, like malnourishment, the starvation. Starvation, the, yes. The non, I mean, just the- Being chained ter- so that you're forced to stand for nine hours a day. Yeah, yeah. that sounds that really That would bad. not fly now, and it's crazy to imagine that it ever flew. Yeah, totally. Well, not long after being reintegrated into the general population and having his privileges restored, Henry served another short stint in solitary, this time for helping to smuggle $25 to a fellow prisoner in his laundry truck. He denied knowing where the money came from, a claim which Shuttleworth did believe. After he was freed from solitary confinement this time around, Henry was given a new work assignment in the kitchen. By January of 1936, prisoners at Alcatraz were becoming resentful of their harsh treatment and disproportionate punishment. On January 20th, workers in the laundry room led a small revolt, leaving their workstations and gathering together on the first floor of the prison. They were quickly quashed by guards under the orders of Warden Johnston and marched back to their cells, but they remained on strike. The following day, 24 kitchen workers joined them on strike, including Henry, who also dumped out 400 pounds of vegetables in the kitchen basement. Wow. Yeah, someone's in trouble. Yeah. Well, he tried to leave his post to go back to his cell, but he was caught and he was sent to solitary confinement in the hole. But that punishment is not nearly as harsh as seven of his fellow kitchen workers who were sent to the dungeon. The strike meant that there weren't enough workers to prepare food for the prisoners. And even workers who were not on strike uh, pretty pointedly refused to take over those jobs. They were like, I will do my own job that I was assigned, but I will not do the job of you know this worker who is striking. So like almost more tacitly supporting the strike oh all right yeah Yeah. well as a result of that the guards were drafted into taking over kitchen duties the kitchen workers who were striking were given nothing but water for three days following the strike and by the 24th many of the prisoners including henry were begging to be returned to their post due to the starvation Uh, shuttleworth obliged although he stripped henry of many privileges and warned him that further disciplinary action may be taken other prisoners held out for longer Uh, 15 of them declared a hunger strike and they eventually needed to be force fed by the prison physician oh that's pretty extreme yeah yeah well it wasn't until the end of february so more than a month later that the last few striking prisoners finally gave in although henry was one of the first people to uh, kind of cave during this incident he continued to act out against prison authority over the next year and he was constantly being reprimanded for talking to fellow inmates for randomly shouting at the top of his lungs and also for refusing to comply with even the smallest orders such as being told to to hand in his empty cup after a meal. Well, on September 20th of 1937, Henry and several other inmates refused to leave their cells for their work duties after lunch, with Henry telling E.J. Miller, the new deputy warden, that, quote, I just can't take it and I am not going to work. Henry was again sent to solitary confinement. He was in and out of solitary over the next year for a series of escalating outbursts, such as throwing his meal tray when he was denied seconds and screaming at the top of his lungs for no reason. He was placed in a sensory deprivation chamber in early October of 1938, and when he was finally let out on October 17th, his behavior changed entirely and he began to act as a model prisoner. Maybe he saw the uh, demigorgon. 
Maybe. Well, what the prison staff did not realize was that despite their strict rules of total silence, Henry had become acquainted with a fellow inmate, Arthur Doc Barker, who was serving a sentence for bank robbery and kidnapping. For the previous two years, Doc Barker had been carefully monitoring the security at Alcatraz and mentored several prisoners who had made failed attempts to escape. Doc was hatching a new plan, and this time he felt confident enough that he himself would take part. His plan was to break out of the hole by sawing through the guard windows, a move that was sure to embarrass Warden Johnson. During Henry's last stay in the isolation cell, he had been slipped three 11-inch hacksaw blades. Doc and his team, including Henry, Rufus McCain, William Martin, and Dale Stamphill, would take turns during their stay in the cells, carefully sawing at the bars. They hid the saw blades on the undersides of a shelf and covered the cuts in the bars with putty and aluminum paint. It only took a matter of weeks to saw all the way through these bars. And that may sound surprising. You would think that you would not be able to saw through those bars at all. But Alcatraz had actually been built initially as a disciplinary barracks. And the outer bars of these cells were made from a soft steel rather than a toolproof steel. Ah... So Warden Johnson had actually begun to upgrade the steel bars, but they were only able to replace those in the B and C blocks before coming against a financial hurdle. So the D block, which was where they were housing the most dangerous prisoners that they had, had these really soft and pliable bars, and all of the prisoners knew about this. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Yes. But the window guards, on the other hand, they were actually upgraded. So they were made from that toolproof steel, which has a kind of soft outer layer, but a very hard core. So Henry tried his best to saw through these window guards, but after he sawed down to that core, he could not go any further. So on January 13th of 1939, Doc and his crew made their move. After committing petty violations to all be sent to that isolation block, they waited until mealtime, when most of the guards would be occupied with corralling prisoners in the general population. After that, Henry climbed up onto the roof of the D-block cells to keep watch, while Rufus McCain and William Martin used a pressure jack to bend the window guards until they snapped. I think they only had to bend it three times, and then it just snapped. Ah, lucky break. Yeah. They carefully replaced the guards, and then they waited until 3 a.m. to finally escape. So each of the five men opened their cells where they had sawed through the bars. They grabbed the sheets off their bed, and they made their way to the isolation cell, which had the busted window guards. They escaped into the night, assisted by a heavy fog. Henry described his feelings that night, saying, quote, My heart was in my mouth. I felt strange, nervous, like a man in a dream. On the beach, we hurriedly threw together a makeshift raft, tying the lumber we had gathered with sheets we carried. We stripped and made bundles of our clothes and put them on the raft. We swam out, pushing the raft before us. 30 yards out, McCain called a halt. He said that the raft was weak, in danger of falling apart. He insisted on going back for more lumber to strengthen our raft. They went back to shore and strengthened the raft with more lumber. They tried once again to set sail, and once again, Rufus panicked and insisted that they go back for more lumber. They did, and shortly after reaching the beach, the guards found them. Henry and Rufus immediately surrendered and were taken back into custody. Doc, Dale Stampill, and William Martin tried to make a run for it and were later taken back to the prison on stretchers. Doc died from injuries sustained during his escape, a skull fracture which began behind his right eye. Oh, wow. So that is that kind of mean he was like beaten or it was an injury from maybe the raft or something? I would guess he was beaten. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the movie kind of has a, a moment like that. where Well, the movie, injured. it's like gunshot wounds. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like they've been shot fleeing, which I mean, I'm sure they were being shot at. Yeah, I guess the guard ha- or the one of the officers had a giant nasty scar. 
Yeah. Okay. Henry never again attempted to escape Alcatraz, and the failed attempt left him especially bitter towards Rufus McCain. He felt, perhaps rightfully, that if Rufus hadn't made them return to shore twice, they might have been successful. Truthfully, Rufus could not swim, and that was why he panicked, a fact that maybe should have precluded his involvement in an escape plan off of an island. I seriously don't know how that didn't come up in the planning stage of their escape. Yeah, he must have been sweating the whole time, like trying to keep that There's fact There's no from other everyone. way off of Alcatraz. Yeah. It's an island. Yeah, you gotta swim at some point. Well, the escape attempt also marked the end of Henry's short period of time as a model prisoner, and he returned to his old ways, taking part in hunger strikes and yelling and cursing in his cell. One night, when the guards had had enough of his unruly behavior, four of them entered his cell to subdue him. A fellow inmate, James Groves, witnessed the event. Quote, four men, guards, went into Young's cell and pulled him out. I didn't recognize any of the guards, but I recognized Deputy Warden Miller. Young was thrown down the steps and landed down at the bottom, and the deputy jumped on his face with both feet. That's the reason he hasn't have any teeth now. At the door of the cell, I saw the guards with their saps, their clubs, hitting him, hitting him on all parts of his body. Henry's growing resentment for Rufus was certainly not helped when, although both were sentenced to several months of isolation in the A block, Rufus befriended the guards and was given the job of orderly. As a result, Rufus was delivering Henry's meals to him while Henry languished behind bars. On August 29th of 1939, Henry attempted to stab Rufus with a shiv when Rufus was delivering his dinner. He was stopped by a guard but managed to flush the shiv down the toilet before it could be confiscated. A few months later, on December 15th, guards searched Henry's cell and found a shiv which had been created from a piece of the toilet flushing mechanism. Henry was sent to solitary confinement for four days. According to Henry's official conduct report kept by the prison, he was not sent to solitary confinement at all in 1940, and on November 11th of that year, he was finally integrated back in with the general population and all of his privileges were restored. However, an inmate named Harry C. Kelly contested this and later testified under oath that Henry had been kept in solitary confinement for most of 1940. He also said that Henry emerged from his time as a different person who would pace and talk to himself, turn down food, and sometimes even forget to put his pants on before heading to the dining hall. Now that both Rufus and Henry were part of the general population, the feud between them seemed to be coming to a head. Rufus confided in another prisoner that if the trouble between the two ended, it would be because, quote, there would be only one of them left on the island. He was also caught by William Daynard, an inmate who worked as a janitor, turning a piece of a metal dustpan into a shiv. He told Daynard that he was planning to use it to kill Henry, and Daynard hid it from him. On December 1st, Rufus once again expressed his desire to kill Henry to prisoner George Miller, saying that he blamed Henry for losing 30 to 35 years of good credit time due to the failed escape. Wow. Well, on December 3rd, Henry and Rufus were eating breakfast at the same time in the dining hall when they made eye contact. According to Henry, Rufus sneered at him and drew a line across his throat. After breakfast, Henry returned to his cell to get his coat and hat before heading out to the yard. On his way there, Rufus confronted him in the hallways and called him a, quote, motherfucker. On trial, Henry claimed that after this point, he blacked out. Henry headed to his work detail in the Model Industries building, where he was present for a 10 a.m. headcount. While the guards continued to count the other inmates, Henry grabbed two planer blades, which had been sharpened into knives and hidden at his workstation. He snuck out of the model shop and made his way to the tailor shop where McCain was working. He immediately rushed McCain and plunged one of the knives deep into his gut. Whew. Yeah. Henry offered no resistance as he was tackled by the guards and his weapons confiscated. McCain was taken to the hospital, but his wound was too severe. He died that afternoon. When questioned by guards and Deputy Warden Miller about why he killed McCain, Henry claimed to not remember a thing. 
Warden Johnston, meanwhile, was already contacting officials in the Justice Department, the FBI, and multiple local news services about the stabbing, setting up the case for Henry to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. At that time, there was a lot of public interest surrounding the goings-on within Alcatraz. Men who completed their sentences and returned to the mainland were often greeted by reporters waiting on the docks, vying for stories about what happened to prisoners there, and many of them were happy to share stories about the horrific treatment and conditions, so long as it did not impact their parole status. Warden Johnston was very aware of the bad press, and under pressure from Washington, he did make some changes around this time, including shutting down the dungeons. When Johnston sent Henry ashore to face murder charges, he was not particularly concerned about how the case might impact public perceptions of Alcatraz, as it seemed to be a cut-and-dry murder case. During his arraignment, Henry made an odd request after stating that he had no money and would need a public defender to be appointed for him. He said, quote, Categorically speaking, I have a preference in lawyers. The more youthful my lawyers are, the better. I should like to have the court appoint two youthful attorneys of no established reputation for verdicts or hung juries. I want no attorney who has had who has a reputation in San Francisco for receiving verdicts. I should like the most youthful attorneys I can get. I still don't understand why he made this request. I guess maybe looking for someone with a more open mind. Yeah, maybe. Towards... Maybe he wanted a young buddy. <laughs> he only wants a friend like in the movie. Yeah, yeah cries he's looking for a christian slater type attorney yeah well the judge granted this request and assigned him two young attorneys sol abrams and james m mckinnis they interviewed henry at length and even made a trip to alcatraz where they requested but were denied access to henry and rufus's files on february 21st 1941 henry entered a plea of not guilty to the murder charge Henry's trial began on April 15th. In his opening statement, Sol Abrams immediately took aim not only at Rufus McCain, but at the institution of Alcatraz. He said that Rufus made sexual advances on Henry, inserted himself into the escape plan, and turned on his fellow inmates immediately after they were captured. Sol claimed that Henry's extensive time in isolation was spent reflecting on Rufus's perceived betrayal, and that in Henry's mind, Rufus became the embodiment of evil. According to Saul, Henry himself did not commit the murder, but rather the conditions at Alcatraz shaped his mind into that of a killer. Aha, that sounds familiar. That's very familiar, yes. Soul proclaimed, quote, We are putting Alcatraz on trial, but we can't help that. We must show its true light. We're trying to show the effect of those conditions on Young's state of mind, his mental condition. We'll show a legal defense that Henry Young had no intent and therefore must be acquitted. The first witness for the prosecution was Warden Johnston, and Sol Abrams questioned him extensively about the conditions in the isolation cells and in the solitary confinement cells. He contested Johnston's claim that he knew about everything happening in the prison by surprising him with the fact that prisoners occasionally snuck drinks of a mixture of milk and gasoline. What a coincidence. That's what we're drinking right now. It is. That's how we have such smooth, sexy voices. Yum, yum. Mm. <laughs> Well, Saul also brought in Deputy Warden Miller as a hostile witness and accused him repeatedly of beating and ordering the beating of prisoners, a claim which Miller denied. Saul put Miller's word against those of multiple inmates, claiming that they had in fact been beaten by Miller and his staff. He made the case to the jury that although the men had criminal records, they had no power when compared to the guards at Alcatraz, and they were risking further mistreatment by testifying. Finally, Saul brought Henry to the stand to testify. Henry spoke about his initial disproportionate punishment for stealing the flashlight and how it pushed him into a life of crime. He described the conditions in solitary confinement at Alcatraz extensively, including his time spent in a cell called the Icebox, which had a vent that let in cold wind from the bay. 
He also claimed that he often had nightmares about the advances that Rufus made on him and repeated his claim that he had completely blacked out and did not remember stabbing Rufus, even saying that he must have just randomly found those knives at his workstation. That claim really reminds me of uh, Chicago, Velma Kelly. Oh, yeah. I completely blacked out. I don't remember a thing. Because <laughs> he had, had it coming. It coming. <laughs> so the defense presented by Henry and his lawyers worked, perhaps better than they or anyone in the media could have predicted. When the jury came back from deliberations, they not only found Henry guilty only of manslaughter, which carried a three-year sentence, versus first-degree murder, which could have seen Henry executed, but they also released a statement condemning Alcatraz. The statement read, quote, It is my duty to inform you on behalf of the jurors that it is our added finding that the conditions as concerned treatment of prisoners at Alcatraz are unbelievably brutal and inhuman and it is our respectful hope and our earnest petition that a proper and speedy investigation of Alcatraz be made so that justice and humanity may be served. The press feeling rightly that they may have had some role in the outcome of the trial due to their sensationalist coverage turned on Henry. Judge Roche also took the time when Henry tried to thank him to defend Warden Johnston and let Henry know exactly what he thought of him. He said of Warden Johnston, quote, so far as I know, the only mistake he ever made was removing you from isolation, letting you go to the prison workshop where you had the chance to plan a cold-blooded, deliberate murder. You took a man's life without provocation. I've sentenced men to the gallows for far less. Oh, he's not as nice as Arlie Emery is in the movie. I know. I really love the judge in the movie. This judge is not very nice. And he mm. comes back later, too. Aha. Uh-huh. From, from beyond the grave. <laughs> That's why it's a horror. No, wait. It's not a horror movie. Never mind. Yep. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, Henry was returned to Alcatraz to serve the remainder of his sentence. And a few months later, the start of World War II erased any public interest in his story or any story of prisoner abuse at Alcatraz. Uh, it's interesting. It's like uh, kind of mirrors the art story on Chicago that we did for our Patreon exclusive where the headlines changed very quickly due to what was happening in society at the time. Oh, yeah. And I think it's also similar where the media coverage you know, almost seemed to influence the outcome from the trial. Yeah. yeah. Well, back in Alcatraz, Henry continued to act out as he had in the years leading up to his groundbreaking trial. He screamed loudly in his cell and threw his belongings out of his cell, provoking other inmates to do the same. He was also sent back to the hole multiple times. His behavior quieted down between September of 1941 and May of 1942, however. On May 14th, he requested to be put into isolation because the other inmates were annoying him, and after two days in isolation, he tried to cut his wrists with his broken eyeglass lens. The prison physician, Dr. Ritchie, recommended that Henry be transferred to another institution as he seemed likely to attempt suicide again, but Johnston resisted, believing that Henry's actions were all an act to get out of Alcatraz. As long as Henry was still in Alcatraz, Johnston believed that he could 
control the narrative surrounding Henry's treatment within the prison. In 1943, Henry converted to Catholicism, and in following the tenets of his new faith, he wrote a letter to Johnston confessing to the murder of the baker in Everett. Johnston initially believed that this was part of Henry's ruse, but when he contacted the authorities in Washington, they did have an unsolved murder of a baker that lined up with Henry's story. Investigators from Washington traveled to Alcatraz to interview Henry and were quickly convinced of his guilt. Henry traveled to Washington to once again stand trial for murder. Johnston continued to express his belief that this was all part of some master plot by Henry and did not believe that the confession stemmed from his religious conversion. Henry was given a life sentence to be served after his release from his initial sentence in 1957. Despite this, Henry seemed optimistic for the first time in a long time. He wrote to his aunt Amelia, who was also Catholic, about his desire to take the cloth, saying, quote, I know that I am a true conversionist who will be free and with you and a priest in five years. Henry's conversion to Catholicism made him a target for other prisoners who feared that he would betray them and confess to things that may impact their stay at Alcatraz. A few also harbored uh, longer-term resentment against Henry because while he was on trial that first time, he told the press the method which was used to break the window guards in the 1939 prison escape, thus preventing any future prisoners from trying to use that same method. Aha, ooh, yep. sneaky. Oh, what a snitch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on February 27th of 1945, two prisoners, Rufus Franklin and Willis Coulter. So many Rufuses in this story. We need to bring back the name Rufus. I love that name. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the actor Rufus Stillwell is a good name. Yeah, well, both the Rufuses in the story aren't aren't the best though. But yeah. uh, but yeah, Rufus Franklin and Willis Coulter attacked Henry with knives left for them by kitchen workers. Henry was stabbed once in the shoulder but lived. Johnston and other bureaucrats feared the return of Henry's name in the press, and in the end, Henry was punished perhaps even more harshly than those who attacked him. Henry was once again confined in isolation, but this time his yard privileges of one hour per day were revoked supposedly for his own protection and he argued that this would not be necessary because franklin and coulter had been locked up elsewhere and he had no other known enemies in the isolation unit ah what a terrible situation to be in i know henry resisted feeling rightfully that he had really done nothing wrong He was attacked. He was the victim. He submitted multiple petitions to the U.S. District Court complaining that he wasn't being given his federally mandated yard privileges and claiming that the prison physician neglected his duties by providing no further treatment to his shoulder wound, which he cleaned just once before Henry was locked in a, quote, filthy caged room with no heat, water, or toilet facilities. But these petitions went to Judge Roche, the very same judge who presided over his first murder trial. The judge, unsurprisingly, took no actions. Yeah, super rotten luck. It was not until 1948, after the retirement of Warden Johnston, that Henry was finally transferred out of Alcatraz. Prior to being transferred, Henry had stopped eating and was acting catatonic. His symptoms were temporarily alleviated by barbiturates, but would return, and so he was transferred to the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. Doctors there were given the task of determining whether Henry was truly mentally ill or faking it. There were some indicators that Henry was faking. He would claim to doctors that he did not remember where he had come from, but they would catch him speaking with other patients about his time at Alcatraz. He also repeatedly read multiple books on psychology while at Alcatraz. He would have outbursts of laughing or crying while giving interviews, but these tapered off with time, giving doctors the impression that they were not genuine. 
Then suddenly Henry changed. He went back into the catatonic state, which had sent him to the medical center to begin with, and this time when doctors injected him with the barbiturate, he snapped back and began to share with them paranoid religious ramblings about how all the psychiatrists were Jesuits, and they were plotting against him. He said that while he was on trial, they offered him a nun to have sex with if he joined their movement as their leader, but he refused because he was already the leader of a movement which would expose the Jesuits as, quote, plotters against the human race. He also claimed that he continued to lead the movement mystically from his cell. Any doubts that the doctors had about Henry's mental state were now gone. They believed that his catatonia was his own defense against these sorts of paranoid outbursts. Henry remained a patient at the medical center for nine years, and his time there was quiet. He mostly read philosophy books and kept to himself, although he did occasionally work for the center as an orderly. In 1957, he was transferred to the Washington State Penitentiary at Walla Walla to serve his life sentence for the murder of the baker. He was released in 1972 when he was 61 years old, and he immediately jumped parole and was never seen again. Yeah, how's that for a satisfying ending? Wow, yeah. Yeah. Whew. Well, prior to that, in 1963, then-Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy announced his intention to shut down Alcatraz. The previous year, Clarence and John Anglin and Frank Morris had escaped, perhaps successfully. This is one of the two escapes where no bodies were found. Oh. This is probably one we'll be covering. They've made movies about it. Oh, cool. So they escaped from the prison, and the resulting investigation revealed that the building was falling into disrepair and required nearly $5 million in renovations. In addition, the cost to house a prisoner for one day on Alcatraz was $23.50 compared to $9.27 per day in mainland facilities. Kennedy planned to create a new maximum security prison in Marion, Illinois to house these prisoners. I'll have you tell your Marion story once we finish. So Alcatraz was officially closed on March 21st of 1963. As he was being escorted out, Frank Weatherman, the very last prisoner to leave, said, quote, Alcatraz was never no good for nobody. The Powerful end. words. Yes. Yeah. So do you want to tell our listeners about what happened with that facility in Marion and why you know? No, no, this is this isn't the 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 sinking story. Oh, it's not the sinking story. No, no. Do you have any other stories about it? Well, growing up, everyone always talked about all the famous people that were there, like John Gotti and and all that, and that you know it was just a super super max prison. I guess if like Freddy Krueger ever got caught, they would put him there along with Jason and Michael Myers. But yeah, yeah, really close to home, like twenty minutes from where I grew up. So what's the sinking prison? This, oh, was it, that also in Marion? No, that was in Murphy's Brother Town. Uh, the other way, I was thinking jail. So it's many. Jail. I was thinking it was just a jail. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. is that maximum security prison still there? It is in yeah. Marion. Mm -hmm. What? Yep, yep. It's still kicking. We should visit next time we're in town. I think you got to commit a really harsh <laughs> crime. <laughs> yeah. Wow. What a story. Yeah. Well, I have a few discussion points I would love to to get your opinion on. So first of all, I guess the big one would be: Do you agree with that initial verdict? The uh, manslaughter verdict for his trial for the killing of Rufus McCain. Well, having seen the movie first, before hearing the uh, 
the true crime that, that happened that inspired that movie, I, I was already going in and like sympathetic towards Henry Young. And even though as sort of drastically different portions of the story are, I still feel like he had a pretty tough life and uh, he made some mistakes and Alcatraz just sounds absolutely terrible. And the fact that he was punished further after that verdict, I think it's like over the top. Yeah. What about you? I don't know. I go back and forth. I almost feel like you could maybe make a case for self-defense. Rufus clearly had it out for Henry also and talked openly with other prisoners about wanting to kill him and trying to get weapons to kill him. Yeah. But I also feel like in terms of Henry's motivation, although he says that I don't believe that he blacked out. Can I? I'm just going to put that out there. I don't believe that he blacked out. I think that he was in complete control of his actions. Yeah, I guess. So I guess in that case, it would be murder. Murder But I think there there are some extenuating circumstances. And I do think he could have believed that, you know, his life was at risk and it was either him or Rufus and he was going to act first. And they don't give any more details about that conversation that they had in the hallway other than, you know, the mother effer. I'm only saying it once, (laughs) once per episode. We're rated PG-13. But I almost wonder if maybe he had made a more explicit threat. And that was why Henry did what he did at that time when he when he did it. Yeah. I also wanted to say Henry's story reminds me a lot of Gary Gilmore's with that idea of so much time in prison from a fairly young age really shaping shaping the person. Oh, absolutely. That's a great connection. Yeah. So go back and check out that episode if you haven't listened to it. That's one of my favorites that we've done. I think that one and In Cold Blood. Yeah, those yeah. were those were quite the cases. So, do you think that Henry was crazy at the end when he, you know, at least was able to convince the doctors and get that that stay at the medical center? Do you think that was true? I guess the doctors believed it. Yeah, I mean, I th- I feel like he went through so much that it seems like he could very well likely have been suffering from some sort of mental health crisis. Um, I, I don't know what exactly it would be, but I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like it could have been legitimate. Yeah, I should say neither of us are doctors. Oh, wait, I am a doctor. Just, <laughs> just not doctor. that kind. <laughs> Yeah. Let me use my PhD in chemical engineering to say, actually, his actions make me think maybe he has something like a oppositional defiant disorder, the way he just absolutely could not kind of behave, you know, even if the treatment was unfair, you know, things like just yelling randomly because of that silence rule or not giving in his empty cup. It seems like a little beyond. Um, But I, I wonder if he was really crazy or whatever you want to call it when he was diagnosed at the medical center because he didn't really act out at all after he was allowed to stay there for the nine years and then as soon as he got parole he left (laughs) you know he says he's a good catholic a good repentant catholic now who wants to serve his time which is why he confessed to the murder and then as soon as he gets parole he jumps it and leaves and you never see him again until he I think became... he is sneaky. I think he's a sneaky boy. Yeah. yeah. It became, yep. Because he became the Zodiac Killer? <gasps> no. The timelines don't add up, do they? No, the timelines do not add up. Damn it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, he was in prison until it was 1972. Yeah. And then vanishes into thin air. He's probably not alive now. I think... He would be over 100, He would right? be over 100, yeah. Yeah. Like 107? That'd be quite old. But I hey, uh, Alcatraz can drive people to do all sorts of things, I'm sure, at the time. Yeah. So before we move on to the movie section, I did want to quickly shout out my source 
It's a website, Alcatraz, the Warden Johnston years, and it's all been compiled by Joel. So thank you, Joel. You are doing God's work. It's an amazing website. There's so much more information than what I talked about. A ton of stuff from like quotes from first person sources. So check it out. It's wwwnotfisco 2 dot com slash alcatraz that's n-o-t-f-i-s-c-o-2 number two good stuff all right so uh we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be back to discuss the kevin bacon slash christian slater starring murder in the first sentenced to a punishment that didn't fit the crime henry young spent three years in solitary in the most notorious prison in america being sentenced for stealing $500, that's extenuating. It was $5, not 500 Until James Stamphill, a young public defender, was assigned to defend him. How old are you? Me, I'm, I'm 24. I am too. Now, an attorney and an inmate will find the most important friendship they'll ever know. You are the one that is going to die if I can't get some corroboration. For a small guy, you're awful slow. I'm already dead. And ignite the most explosive case of their lives. Big up against Alcatraz makes up a lot of enemies. Enemies like who? I think you should withdraw from the case. I want you to get up there and change my plea to guilty. I thought you wanted to fight. I just wanted a friend. This administration is not going to allow some kind of a witch hunt in the Justice Department. You don't know what it's like. Well, what's like? Alcatraz! Warner Brothers proudly presents a motion picture inspired by the true story of two men. We're friends, huh? There are some things worth fighting for. Who brought the darkest secret in America to light. We'll fight these men so they will never be able to do this to anyone again. Christian Slater. Are you guilty of the murder of Rufus McCain? Kevin Bacon. I was a weapon, but I ain't no killer. Gary Oldman. I will not be treated the same way as this. Lying, murdering! Two-time loser! One broke the silence, the other broke the system. I point to the associate warden, Mr. Glenn, the warden, Mr. Humpson, and the institution known as Alcatraz and say, I accuse, I accuse Alcatraz of the torture of Henry Young. Murder in the first. Hey, we're back. Henry Young's crime of heisting $5 for his starving sister led to a fate worse than death, a sentence in Alcatraz prison. After a failed escape, he's confined to the dungeons and in solitary confinement for three grueling, terrifying years. When Henry finally emerges from his extreme confinement, he is broken, confused, and disoriented. On his first day back into the prison population, he snaps and quickly kills the inmate who ratted him out. But a fresh and ambitious attorney develops a plan to prevent Henry from getting the death penalty, put Alcatraz's barbaric treatment of inmates and its cruel leaders on trial. And that is 1995's Murder in the First, starring Kevin Bacon as convict Henry Young, who we just talked about. Also, Christian Slater plays lawyer James Stample. Gary Oldman plays Warden Milton Glenn. Imbeth Davids as attorney Mary McCaslin. William H. Macy as the DA William McNeil. The great Brad Dorff as, oddly enough, Christian Slater's brother. And uh, Arlie Ermey as Judge Clausen. And another interesting thing that I didn't know until I was reading about the cast was that Kira Sedwick, who is Kevin Bacon's wife, played Blanche, who they snuck into the room to uh, to give Henry a little bit of a good time. I did recognize her. I forgot that she was married to Kevin Bacon, though. Yeah. 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 It was, it was a nice I wonder if that's there. where they met. 
I think they no. Were they, they were, all already married? I think so. All right. Could be wrong, but I don't know. If any of you listeners know more about Hollywood couples than I do, yes. <laughs> Let us know when they got together. Uh, so this movie was directed by Mark Rocco, and he actually directed a horror movie um, that I have seen called The Jacket. It stars Kira Knightley and Adrian Brody. But the more interesting and important movie is he directed Dream a Little Dream, which is the Corey Feldman and Corey Haim body swap comedy. The Corys don't swap bodies, which should have been one of their movies. For I am absolutely certain that that would be brilliant. Corey Feldman swaps bodies with Jason Robards, and hilarity is ensues. I was much more interested when I thought Corey Feldman and Corey Haim swapped bodies. I know, right? Yeah. Oh, mm. That would have been really good. What a missed opportunity. Yeah, totally. Yeah. There is a tragedy in this story, however, because Mark well, Rocco... Corey Haim. Well, oh, another tragedy. Well, oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. There, yeah, well, of course, Corey Haim passing it was a tragedy. Yeah, Mark Rocco just randomly died in his sleep at age 46. That's insane. Yeah. That's my biggest fear. Um, so the movie was written by Dan Gordon, uh, and it was not based off really any prior work other than inspired by the the true crime, which we talked about. He is known for writing screenplays to White Earp and uh, the Wesley Snipes movie, Passenger 57, and then some hurricane movie called The Hurricane. I don't know. I haven't seen it. I don't even think I've heard of it. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking of The Perfect Storm now in my head. Oh, yeah. All right. So before we get really too deep into all sorts of trivia about this, I thought we could take a moment while it's still fresh in our minds about Henry Young's life and incarceration at Alcatraz to talk about some of the the differences and also about how maybe since you you were so close to the research material, how it impacted the movie, because I, on the other hand, did not have any prior knowledge of the case when we watched the movie. I noticed you were commenting on on some things as we were screening. Yeah. the film that were very different from how it played out in real life so do you have sort of some of the the top items that made a a big difference in terms of the the movie versus the true crime yeah i mean i will say i was being pretty obnoxious in the beginning of the movie but eventually the movie kind of sucked me in and i was able to get past it but the movie really almost turns kevin bacon into you know much more of a hero than the real life henry young ever could be so in the movie he is arrested for stealing five dollars from a store after he tried to get a job and they wouldn't give him a job and because the store doubled as a post office it was a federal crime and that's why he was sent to alcatraz and it was away right yeah he was whisked away to alcatraz he was stealing it to feed his sister his starving sister because their parents died and he was raising her so none of that is true As you you know now from the, the first half of our story, he did have a younger sister, but you know, his mom was alive. And, you know, the, the sister was with the parents. So, yeah, so none of that was true. The movie really stresses on you know, him spending three years straight in solitary confinement. And that is what essentially drove him mad. Yeah. So yeah. he he is driven mad immediately after being released from his three years in solitary confinement. He is in the cafeteria. He grabs a spoon, just the spoon he was eating with, and goes and stabs Rufus McCain. And in the movie, actually, the escape attempt, they said, was thwarted because Rufus McCain turned them in. And they kind of uh, start the movie off with that. They start. Setup, the, yes, right? they start or, the movie off with with that setup. Yeah. And none of that is true. Gosh, could you imagine like the spoon? I. I remember when I saw it happen, I was thinking it was like a fork or a knife. Um, nope. And then they say spoon repeatedly. I was like, ooh. 
And they harp on these these little details like him being stabbed with the spoon and it being three years and him being, you know, let outside for 30 minutes per year. And other than that, just being kept in solitary confinement and complete isolation, even like sensory deprivation, like the chamber is just completely dark and cut off. And it is in the basement, the dungeon. Yeah. And none of that is true. He was held in isolation, which is different than in solitary. And he was held in the A block um, in real life. And I feel like the stress they put on those little details, it almost feels a little bit deceptive when they're saying it's based on a true story. You would think those little sorts of details, those details that they really harp on are what is true. And I think the story itself is very interesting and it's almost made more interesting by that question of, is he faking it? Is he a big faker? And you are not given the opportunity to even think that in this movie. There is no way this like poor man is faking it. He is completely 100% a victim of evil Gary Oldman. Yeah, <laughs> who like yeah. slashes his Achilles tendon with a straight razor for no reason. It's so different. But the movie really <laughs> is really good. It is. It's so good. And I think you you feel a lot of sympathy for these characters and you kind of you get that sense of victory at the end. And they even set it up like this case closed Alcatraz. This is the reason that we don't have Alcatraz anymore. And even that I've seen in some references, but it seems like much more than that. It was the money. Oh, that it was so yeah. expensive to upkeep. And yeah. It, and so even, you're so, yeah. So the cost per prisoner yeah, right. the cost per prisoner and then the money that they would need to pay up front for the repairs that it needed yeah. was so extreme compared to just building a brand new place. I mean, um, if they couldn't just like have the money to replace all the bars at once so that prisoners couldn't escape. It I seemed guess. like it was even more than that. I mean, the weathering on that building, if you imagine it in the middle of the San Francisco Bay, it's just not a good place for a building. Although they're making bank now with that uh, that museum. Yeah. But so what, a million uh, visitors a year, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah I really want to go I've not been but yeah you know that I think they set that up and that's not necessarily true even like I was reading when I was doing my research I came across a New York Times article from like 1995 that came out after the movie came out talking about it and they described everything that happened in the movie as if it were fact and then all the way at the bottom it's like the little editor's addendum by the way none of this is real <laughs> here's what actually happened it's like a little paragraph correcting them but you know I, I would think that probably a lot of people just watched that movie and left with the impression that those are the facts and also by the time Alcatraz closed it was a very different facility you know they'd closed the dungeon prisoners had like movie nights on the weekend they could play instruments there was no more silence rule even before that by the 1950s so I think those sorts of abuses absolutely happened at Alcatraz in the early days. They likely happened at many other prisons around that same time. We kind of know better now. I still think that you know our, our prison system could be focused more on rehabilitation and less on punishment. I think we've talked about that before yeah. in some other episodes. But yeah, so that's that's my two cents. That's more like my 25 cents. I've no, been going good. for a while. Yeah, no, I think it's important to talk about because this is one of those unique situations of a film adaptation that it is presented as this is this is what happened and there are big differences even the motivation of Henry Young for even getting into the situation of being in Alcatraz 
He also, although you know they didn't know about it, he committed a murder before he was ever sent to Alcatraz. That crime he committed, you know, m- murder while robbing a place, could get him the death sentence now in many states. And he actually, you know, even after converting to Catholicism and saying, I'll take whatever punishment, he did say, I will confess up front and be very cooperative if the death penalty is off the table, which is, you know, why he got that life sentence in Washington. So he's not dumb. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that they could have um, or they should have like changed the names of the characters in the movie just to maybe sever that connection to reality? Yes, actually, that is I had not even thought of that. And I think that would make a big difference. I'm just like a little little like Harry Young. This is Harry Young. And they changed the lawyer's name. I mean, Stamp Hill was the name of one of the prisoners that joined in on the prison escape attempt. And, you know, James was his name. I actually did notice on the door to uh, Christian Slater slash James Stamp Hill's office, the other name was Sol Abrams, who is the, the actual lawyer that did most of the talking oh, um, in the trial. Egg. Yeah. Yeah. I, no- I noticed it. And I was like, I'm going to say something. And then I was like, nah, because David won't know what I'm talking about. But now you know. <laughs> now I know. Yes, yeah. and all of you should know to to look for that if you're going to watch the movie after this. Just, you know, a little... I, I like the little touches, but, you know, they changed the name of the wardens. So, uh, Glenn, yeah. um, Gary Oldman's character, that is uh, Deputy Warden Miller in oh, the real okay. story who, you know, supposedly took part in the beatings. So they changed everyone's name except for, you know, Henry Young's, who's... You know, the, the one whose legacy they're really shaping. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. how they, they chose to do that. Also, the Alcatraz website has its own, like, site just dedicated to talking about how Henry Young was actually not an awesome person. <laughs> oh. I guess they maybe got a little bit of uh, a little bit of crap after the movie came out, which not to say that they don't deserve crap because they were really not treating prisoners well. I mean, we described, you know, in, in detail in the story about the conditions in solitary and in the dungeon. It's like, that's not okay, even if it all didn't necessarily happen to Henry Young. But talk about, yeah, gaining sympathy. I mean, Kevin Bacon's performance in this is so good. And I don't know if it's like genuinely good it's very difficult to not feel very like emotionally wrapped up in the way the story is told in the movie because it's very affecting and and really well done to be honest it was designed to do that it was like oh i see your heartstring what would happen if i just tug 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 <laughs> yeah yeah yep yeah, but I really liked, you know, how he portrayed Henry. I really got a kick out of Kristen Slater playing James Stample as this fresh-faced attorney. To me, it really could have veered into sort of a all shucks kind of false performance. Maybe it's just because it's Christian Slater and I, I dig him as an actor. But yeah, I, I really bought bought it. Yeah, I did too. I, I really bought into it. And that's going into it very, very skeptical. And it still, it still got me. And I think they, they do do a good job, you know, although they make it clear that Henry is who he is because of his treatment in Alcatraz. There are moments where he does stuff and you think like, Ooh, like his treatment of the the female lawyer trying to touch her and masturbating in front of her. I think that's maybe a little more true to the character of someone who would take the actions that the the real life Henry Young does. So, you know, he's not like this perfect angel, but it's very clear that those three years in solitary confinement are, you know, why why he's acting the way he is. 
which I don't know how true to life that is. Well, and he also didn't spend three years in solitary confinement. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, it kind of feels like the, the goal of the movie is to uh, deliver the message that things were terrible at Alcatraz and they were shut down sort of for that reason. They don't really get into the what we talked about with the, the budgeting, though, and the failing facilities and the failure of security other than why do inmates continually try to escape Alcatraz? And I guess it's because it was sort of falling apart. <laughs> Yeah. Well, besides who would not want to get away yeah. from that sort of situation. But, you know, other stories like, oh, 32 inmates left in straitjackets. No history of mental illness. They were driven insane by the prison. <laughs> also not true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a there could have been a, a horror movie aspect to this movie with ghost prisoners or they could have been experimenting or there were monsters in the dungeon or something. But they didn't go that route. So, no. but yeah. Um. But when you're taking so many liberties, why not, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. I thought there was an interesting, like, small commentary on women in the legal system with Kristen Slater's, what's the right word? Not partner in crime. Huh. Uh, they work together. They're both attorneys yeah. at the same firm. But um, also have a relationship, I think, that it's intimated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's intimated, but they, they never have any, like, scenes of their home life or, or anything like that. But the character, Mary McCaslin, played by Embeth Davidson, I think she, she mentions at a certain point in time when the pressure is on Christian Slater to not go so heavily handed uh, at the warden of Alcatraz because there's, like, a plot element of, I guess, J. Edgar Hoover was involved with place i don't know how true to life that is but they they include that element in the movie yeah to kind of i think create well, some drama yeah so warden johnston is the real life character and it is not true that he was in charge of like san quentin one other prison and alcatraz at the same time it's also like no one would be in charge of a federal penitentiary and a state penitentiary at the same time oh yeah so none of that's true and johnston actually lived on the island so he did not only visit 24 times in three years or whatever was claimed in the movie but yeah um, grain of salt man take <laughs> it with a grain of salt yeah so i guess the really the lesson here is, or not the lesson the interesting factoid about this film is that you know a lot of it exists on its own as like a movie i think we both enjoyed despite knowing that you know they kind of fibbed quite a lot yeah in the in the retelling of history yeah and that's something that i think our show approaches a lot of times in this case though i think they're like woo, it's like they really changed this yeah i will say murder by numbers is a truer adaptation of leopold and loeb <laughs> than this movie is of the true story of henry young yeah but I like this movie more than Murder by Numbers. But I also really like Murder by Numbers. Mm, this was this was a better movie than Murder by Numbers. Yeah, I th I agree. Yeah. I, I I think it's like there's just all these really great actors were in it. It was moving and touching and inspirational and uplifting and depressing. It it really really plays with your emotions. Sometimes I don't like that, but I liked that about this movie. I think that I didn't really feel like I was being tricked, even though that's kind of what they're trying to do <laughs> yeah. but it felt okay speaking of manipulating one's emotions uh have a couple of taglines for this film that i just wanted to share with all of you and as usual chelsea get your opinions on them starting with this one which actually it kind of sounds like a tone poem it's a little weird all right <clears throat> i accuse alcatraz of crimes against humanity the lawyer i was a weapon but i ain't no killer the accused I am not on trial here, the warden. 
words cannot express how much I don't like that as a tagline. <laughs> I'm assuming that's why you put that one first. Yeah, that's right. Why? How? No, that's just not a tagline. Yeah, I, I saw this listed and I think it must be like on a poster somewhere. Oh, man. Yeah. All right. I got another one. Maybe it's a little better. The trial that brought down Alcatraz. That's okay. I'll allow it. They locked him up. They crushed his spirit, but they couldn't hide the truth. I like that one better. One was condemned. The other was determined. Two men whose friendship gave them the will to take on the system. I don't love that as a tagline, but I do love it as a very condensed summary of the movie. (laughs) The friendship at the heart of this movie was just, I think that's the reason that I really like the movie. It has nothing to do with the real story. It's just, it's very touching. Yeah, and I think this uh, final one kind of speaks to that too. One broke his silence. The other broke the system. Yeah, that one's perfect. Yep. A plus. Yeah, right on. You're right, though. It's like, you know, Henry says, are you my friend? He's like, are you my friend? Or however, yeah. I don't, you know, we're, we were talking about like his choice of uh, accent, accent or, or whatever. Yeah. But, Affect. Um, yes. And yeah. it starts out, he just wants to play cards. Yep. That's all he wants. Or he just wants to know about baseball. About baseball, just yeah. wants to know about baseball. I don't really follow baseball. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, he says repeatedly, I don't want a lawyer. I just want a friend. And, yeah. you know, he, he also makes it pretty clear that he doesn't actually want to win the trial. And as they get close to winning, he kind of freaks out. It was never about winning the trial to him. It was just being out of solitary and having someone to talk to and having someone on his side. Oh, it's so touching. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So based on uh, all of our listener feedback, it sounds like a lot of you have already seen this movie, but there's probably a lot of you out there who have not. And maybe based on the what we've talked about so far, it hopefully will inspire you to check out this movie because I think we both enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I thought and we- if, if we did not enjoy a movie, we would tell you. We would tell you not to watch it. Do not go watch From Hell. Go watch Murder in the First. Yeah. This movie is a good movie, you know, and I, I would be curious about other people's experience, especially after listening and knowing about the true story maybe if you've seen it before and watch it again after knowing about the true story i would love to hear if that changed your experience at all hopefully we didn't ruin this movie for you by telling you that henry young was not a sweet guy who just wanted to steal five dollars to feed his sister just like jean valjean Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I thought we could just take a couple of minutes to talk about maybe some of our our favorite scenes or like set pieces or performances that stood out outside of the like things that happen in real life or those kind of comparison contrasts. So do you have anything that really jumps out to you that you wanted to start with? Yes. I know we mentioned the movie starts with it's almost like a news broadcaster talking about the escape attempt at Alcatraz. And the news broadcaster comes back later on, you know, with with news of the trial. But the first scenes after that where it's showing a little bit of Kevin Bacon's slash Henry Young's experience while in solitary, kind of showing him being physically abused and locked in the darkness and beaten and almost you know strung up. It's a very powerful way to start the movie and it definitely sets the scene. I mean, everything that happens after that is a reflection of his time in solitary. And I thought it was you know, very well done while not being super graphic got to see his butt you do get to see his butt but it's just a sad shriveled up butt i think he lost a lot of weight for this movie yeah i don't remember what the number was but yeah he he definitely did so that scene really stood out to me i think the other scene man all the scenes that stand out to me are just like kevin bacon being tortured 
but that's really what stands out from this movie um but the scene where he's like brought out to the prison yard at i guess it's like christmas time and he thinks that he's finally free from solitary confinement and then they tell him that he, he's just getting his 30 minutes yeah see that face you're making yeah it's yeah they tell him he's just getting like 30 minutes of exercise time and he just starts like screaming and sobbing and it's just now i feel like i'm not selling people on this movie <laughs> oh no no but you know those those are the the images and the scenes that stick out to me because it's just really tragic even if it is just contrived right on what about you what stood out to you well, there's two scenes early on that are kind of follow follow up to your scenes uh, where poor Henry's being tortured. But it's when Christian Slater first goes to visit Henry and you really felt, I guess, sort of Henry having just been so utterly physically, mentally destroyed. And then having Christian Slater as just this sort of happy-go-lucky, like, I want to find out why you did it and what happened that day. And, you know, all Henry wants wants to do is to like well he's retreated in on himself but when he does come out he like we said earlier he just kind of wants a friend he just wants like the basic nuggets of something beyond his life at alcatraz and so he he kind of whispers dimaggio right he's yeah like, how's dimaggio doing this yeah. season yeah and unfortunately of course that great setup and christian slater knows nothing about baseball he has nothing to give him and then that's what kind of snaps henry out of it a little bit because he just he can't believe that Kristen Slater is so privileged and he's free and he has a job and there have been all these baseball games played during the three years that Henry's been in solitary confinement and Kristen Slater hasn't watched a single one or followed any of the games and it's yeah. just wow yeah and there's a little callback to that later when James Christian Slater's character goes to the cell that Henry was kept in and he's drawn a little baseball diamond on the floor yeah oh I'm gonna start crying just talking about this movie I know I don't know if we're selling it I feel like we're talking about a Disney movie or something almost, but it's really good. This movie's great. Yeah. I feel like it has this great, like, it must be some sort of mathematical formula for movie pleasure. And it kind of, it's it's successful all the way through because the only other main thing I just wanted to mention was um, Arlie Ermey's role. You know, he plays the judge and typically he's like this caricature of a person. You know, he's he's always played like the, the drill sergeants and, and all of that. And in this case, you know, he's, he's a little a little bit more reserved and I think like his casting is perfect because we expect him to like be a hard ass and he actually shows how sort of a what's the right word like gracious he is towards the argument that Kristen Slater proposes during trial and that is that Kristen Slater just straight up says that Henry did it Henry did it but he was used as a weapon and the actual quote person that used him as that weapon was the prison system and those in charge of Alcatraz. And that just like kicks off the movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's true. The, the ups in that movie are up. The downs are down and it really is, is quite the ride. Do we want to spoil the ending? That's kind of our, our tagline, right? Spoilers abound. So uh, the ending is also something I didn't even touch upon this when I was talking about differences between the movie and the film. Oh, this is probably the biggest one. Yeah. So, so, you know, in, in the end, as in the real case, uh, Henry is convicted of manslaughter and he's you know sentenced to another three years. So he gets sent back to the island. 
end and you know James watches him go onto the the ship to Alcatraz and promises that he's going to you know submit appeals and get him out sooner get him transferred to a different prison to serve that sentence because he knows that going to Alcatraz he's going to immediately be tortured again I mean at that point Glenn Gary Oldman still has his job so he's basically going back to the the wolf den or whatever before he could file the appeal Henry kills himself after writing the word victory in his cell so you know they they have a moment where he's kind of walking and all the other prisoners at Alcatraz start banging their cups to kind of cheer him on and like as he's walking his like back gets straighter and he starts walking more confidently and that's like kind of the last time they show him beforehand so you know you do get the feeling that he feels like he's won you know although he does commit suicide and you know in, in the real story Henry does have that that suicide attempt at least so maybe somewhat of a parallel but still still a different ending for Henry, whose real life fate is unknown. He could be 108 years old somewhere, just chilling, maybe on a beach, with a little drink with an umbrella in it. Yeah, that sounds yeah. nice. Could be. Yep, it could be. It would not be the oldest person. No, I just saw the oldest person's like 112 or something crazy like that. Yeah, so it's got a few more years. Or it's an old man. I think there's a woman who's even older. Yeah, no, it's all good stuff. And like we said earlier, if, if this intrigues you, I highly encourage you to check it out if you have not seen it. Yes, and please let us know if you do. We love hearing from you guys. And if we have not sold it, because I just cannot stop with trivia, uh, I think of Kevin Bacon. I think of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon a lot. As, oh, me too. Right? So there is an actor in this movie that has been in three movies total with Kevin Bacon, and that would be Gary Oldman. And he's in this film. He's in a movie called Criminal Law in 1988 and also in JFK in 1991. So use that one for all your uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon games. Yes, exactly. There were actually uh, three other actors who were all together in one movie, and that would be Brad Dorff, Arlie Ermey, and Stephen Tobolowsky. He's sort of the, the lead partner in the law firm of uh, that Christian Slater works for on, and Beth Davids. They were in Mississippi Burning from Oh, we are so doing that one for the podcast, by the way. Yes. yes. And uh, if none of you are familiar with that movie, it is based on the true crime about the Freedom Summer murders. And that uh, involved three activists who were abducted and murdered in Neshoba County, Mississippi in June of 1964 during the Civil Rights Movement. That uh, is a very powerful story and I think definitely worth covering for the show. Yes. Yep. All right. Well... We've said a lot about murder in the first. I have not called it murder by degree or the other one. Yeah. Murder by the first numbers. Murder by numbers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I typed it several times, but <laughs> I hopefully did not say it um, anytime during this episode. We hope you've enjoyed um, hearing all about the the true crime aspect of it and the, the, the film and the differences and how art oftentimes shifts for whatever reason fun movie all right chelsea should we move over to now playing yes now let's. A good time? do you want to go first or should i go first i'll go first because i have absolutely nothing you have for absolutely now nothing for i am coming now soon but i don't have anything for now playing i feel like there are a million plates in there right now and i cannot focus on any of them all right. Well, then I'll say that my now playing is this TV show bad enough to be good. Maybe I guess I'll, I'll let you guys decide that for yourselves. It's called Rain and it's like a bit of like a bodice ripping romancy type television show mm. about Mary, Queen of Scots. So I started watching it on one of my many recent plane rides because it was available to like download off of Netflix to watch later and I can't stop watching it. So every time I have like a minute away from David, I'm like, eh, 
watch a little bit more. You're watching it now, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, there's five seasons. We'll see if I ever finish it. But uh, I've heard many a debate of who's hotter. Is it Sebastian, the bastard son of the king? Ah. Or is it Francis, the rightful heir, at least initially? <laughs> The answer is neither. It's Nostradamus. Hottest guy in the show, hands down. Wow, right on. Yeah. Bringing you the important groundbreaking news and conclusions. Well researched. Anyway, what's what's your coming soon? Oh, I got to jump back because I'm so stupid. Uh, my now playing is Ash vs. Evil Dead, of course. I mean. <laughs> I feel like that's already been your now playing and coming soon multiple times. It will be for like until all 10 that's episodes true. of season yeah. three are over with. Oh my gosh. The new season's so good. Yeah. As a, a longtime Evil Dead fan. I love the show. It, it just it tops itself. But yes, thank you for your prompt with now playing because because that uh, sparked my brain. (laughs) What about rain made you think Ash versus Evil Dead? It was uh, Nostradamus, actually. What? I don't know. Man. I thought Necronomicon. Six six degrees of Nostradamus. (laughs) Nostradamus, Necronomicon. Sure. Eh, whatever. Okay. You said coming soon. I really want to binge watch the uh, Lost in Space reboot on Netflix. I want to watch all of them in like one setting until like I'm just melted and bonded into the sofa. All right. You'll watch those while I'll watch more rain on my cell phone because <laughs> that's how I watch it. I've never actually seen it on a big screen. I've only seen it on my cell phone. Oh, all right. Yeah. Right on. Cool. What's your coming soon? I was going to say more rain, but I'm going to add in New Westworld. It's coming back for season two. The first season just blew my mind. I'm I'm really excited. So uh, I forget when it starts, but I think it's like, is it next month? Uh, End of April, maybe? End of April? Man, that is soon. Yeah, all it's right. already previewed for journalists. Reviews are all out there already. Are they good? Yeah. All right, good. Yay. All right. Okay. Well, we are on social media, aren't we? Yes, we are. We're we're a few places. We we get around a bit. We're on Instagram at based on a true crime. We're on Twitter at true crime based. We're on Facebook with our regular page based on a true crime podcast. But we also most importantly have a discussion group called Cult of Based on a True Crime, and that you can just ask for an invite, and we'll preview as quickly as we can. Chelsea and I battle each other to accept people first yes i usually win because i'm always on facebook yeah so just know when you get that notification that you've been accepted chelsea and i are like battling each other out (laughs) from separate places because we're usually both at at our day jobs or we're at home and i like knock david's phone out of his hand yeah yeah when it happens at home it's serious business (laughs) (laughs) we're also on uh patreon so patreon.com slash based on a true crime. We got two new patrons this month, which I've been really excited about. So welcome Sherry and Orion. I hope you've been enjoying our backlog of episodes. We've got a few now, three, four. Three, I think. Yeah. Three, yeah. And yeah, we'll have another one out next month. And we're still trying to think of what kind of more goodies we can offer. So if any of our listeners are on Patreon, you know, let us know what you want. If you have ideas for what you want, you know, join our Patreon and let us know. Yes, please let us know. And uh, if your feeds have gone crazy at all, it's because we have kind of been migrating hosts a bit on the uh, back end of things, all the the crazy, boring stuff that uh, makes the show run and get to you guys. Yeah, yeah, and we'll have some news related to that too pretty soon. Yep, so thanks for sticking with us there. Um, If you have any uh, technical issues, please just reach out to us on any of those uh, social media networks. So far, I know that we've disappeared from CastBox and I'm trying to get in touch with them, so. 
So hopefully by the time you listen to this, it will be on CastBox. Maybe you're listening on CastBox. Hello, CastBox listener. Hello, CastBox listener. <laughs> Hello, Stitcher listener. Yeah, it was good. I did good. Yeah, did you guys laugh? Did you guys laugh at that? I did. All right. So if you would like to see any of my art, please check me out at Lab Creature everywhere. You can just look up Lab Creature and you will find me. Also, our podcast theme and supporting music was composed and performed by Nico Vatis of We Talk of Dreams. And he can be found on Twitter at (laughs) We Talk of Dreams. Uh, Also, uh, the website, wetalkofdreams.com. And of course, Instagram, also at that handle, at We Talk of Dreams. Yes, and stay tuned after our traditional sign-off to hear promos from Murder Was the Case and Eye for an Eye podcast. And if you're looking for something to listen to after this, you should go on over and subscribe to them. Give it a listen. Give it a review. Tell them that we sent you. And speaking of sticking around, just remember, death is but a door. And time is but a window. We'll be back. Let's skip the foreplay. Murder. You want to talk about it. Hear about all kinds of nasty things. Sex. Torture. Madness. Dismemberment. And why, more than anything, you want to know why. Well, dear listener, you ain't never had a friend like me. Tune in to Murder Was the Case. Featuring author and investigative criminologist, Lee Meller. Sometimes solo, often with guests, always horrifically entertaining. Listen to Murder Was the Case on iTunes, Google Play, or go to murderwasthecase.podbean.com. It's gonna be sick. Hey, 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 everybody. My name's Lisa. And my name is Matt. And we are the hosts of Eye for an Eye podcast. And we are trying to determine whether or not the punishment fits the crime. Was an eye for an eye, Matt? Does the punishment make sense? Was it too lenient, too harsh, too rough, not enough? We're not sure, but we're about to figure it out. And do you think that we have the opportunity to determine now what happened after the fact? Take a listen to our podcast, Eye for Eye podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.